You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. I'd like to live forever. I'd like everybody to live forever. But what would it mean to live forever? Literally mean. Every religion offers life after death, promising immortality or eternal life of one kind or another. I yearn to believe, but I do not believe, so I seek. But I do not seek evidence of post-death survival. I'm skeptical of all such survival evidence. My way is to assess the religious offer. I prod and push believers. I eschew generalities and spurn platitudes. What would immortality and eternal life specifically be like? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. To probe immortality and scrutinize eternal life, I speak with believers. Because I respect a scientific way of thinking, I begin in London with believer and physicist Russell Stannard. Russell suggests that deep ideas in science may elucidate hazy ideas in theology. Can this make sense? Russell, you believe in the resurrection, that human beings have this opportunity to be eternal in some way. How, as a physicist and as a believer, do you conceptualize this eternity? Quite honestly, I haven't a clue. Um, That's very disappointing. <laughs> well, I haven't a clue, but I'll carry on talking. Um, <laughs> I remember going to a lecture once. I think, I think the title was something like, What is Eternity Like? I thought, oh, gosh, I'm going to find out at last. You know? And it, it was a talk given by an art critic. The talk mostly consisted of her showing slides of pictures of heaven, you know, mostly Renaissance pictures, you know, sort of angels, you know, adoring God and all the rest of it, you know. And I, and I always remember how she, she ended this sequence of slides by saying, hmm, in heaven there seems to be an awful lot of standing around doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> My idea of heaven is, is to get to the pearly gates. And, and Peter has a long list. He says, thank God you're here, Russell. Uh, God's got all these things for you to do and you're already behind schedule. <laughs> I think, great, get, get down to it. All of this, of course, seriously, is, is bringing in the question of time. One often thinks of, of, of the life to come as being everlasting, and, and that sounds a bit horrific to me. But theologians will say, no, no, that is not the right word. It's not everlasting. It's eternal. And eternal is not to be equated with everlasting. Eternal means beyond time. That can scare me worse because it sounds like I'm frozen in an instant, mm -hmm. like in a block of plastic, looking happy. 
Yes, and, 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 and being happy. Our imagination is something that, that we can't think of anything divorced from time. I think that we just simply have to accept that there are realms of existence beyond our current experience. I am a physicist, and as a physicist, uh, you're trained to, to look upon time rather differently because there, there is an aspect of, of physics called relativity theory which sees the whole of time as existing, of, if you like, in an instant, where the past, the present and the future all exists on, on an equal footing. And that is, is very, very similar to the theological idea that somehow God is able to take in the whole of time in, in one glorious vision. Does that mean that God is bored? I, I, I very much doubt that God is bored. Somehow he gets over the boredom business by being outside of time rather than you know, being a prisoner of time. We, we are prisoners of time. He is not a prisoner, so there will be a tremendous sense of, and, of, and, of and, release. And whatever God is now, whatever the now means, we in your theology would be similar. We will share. Mm. share it to, to, to some extent. And I think that um, through, through relativity theory, um, you know, God has provided us with just a glimpse of the possibility that there's more to time than our subjective mental experience of it. Russell's my kind of guy admits he hasn't a clue but then doesn't hesitate to speculate. He distinguishes everlasting life or immortality, which means unending time, from eternal life, which means outside of time. I like that because the distinction begins to sort out different ways an afterlife could be. It also confronts my primary problem with immortality all that time. What to do with all that time? Wearing a permanent smile while basking in beatitudes just doesn't cut it for me. I should explore origins of immortality. How did the concept of eternal life enter Western religions? For the earliest scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, I go to New York to meet Rabbi Neil Gilman, author of The Death of Death, Resurrection and Immortality in Jewish Thought. Neil, we all feel this intrinsic desire to believe, to hope, no matter how thinly, that there's something beyond this physical life that we lead. Cling by my fingernails to this, <laughs> Wonderful to this hope, yeah, from Judaism from Daniel, was composed at the very, very end of the biblical period. Bodily resurrection enters into the picture for the first time. Until then, death is death. When you're dead, you're dead. No immortal soul no, either. Nothing. No mention of the soul in the Hebrew scriptures. It's, it's a, not as an entity. It's the breath that vivifies the body and death is the extinction of that spark, and okay. then that's death, right? That changed in the book of Daniel 
because of the need for uh, a further statement of God's justice. Because Israelites were going to, to die as martyrs in the Maccabean War, and uh, there, there had to be uh, a, a some form of justification for that kind of death. And, and along comes the author of Daniel 12, who says that death is not the end, that those of you who die for God and Torah and, and Israel will be resurrected. Jewish religion had to go that way, because otherwise you were left with the notion that you died and, and God's justice evaporated. And, and it's also a limitation on God's power. God's power over my destiny ends with my death, mm. and that's the omnipotent God, that's the transcendent God. So death is more powerful than God. So I might as well worship death, okay? So that's bodily resurrection. About a century later, Jews in Egypt began reading Greek philosophy, and from Plato they got the notion that the human person is made up of a physical body and a spiritual substance, which is a soul, a something, a noun, right? that enters the body before birth, or at birth, or at conception, whenever, that's not terribly important, and then at death separates from the body and goes off to be with God. And then they read that back into the Hebrew yes, Bible. Yes, The interesting thing is that Daniel doesn't know anything about souls, <laughs> and apocryphal literature where this notion of the soul enters it, they don't care about bodies. <laughs> from, from Plato, they got the notion that bodies are trivial, and bodies can disintegrate, and who needs them in any case. The Talmudic rabbis inherited these two traditions and conflated them. From the beginning of the rabbinic period, Jews affirmed that God resurrects the dead, the bodies are resurrected, reunited with souls, and uh, we come before God in judgment. Until the Enlightenment, when suddenly this notion of bodies rising from the grave perturbed the Jews who sought respectability, intellectual respectability. The mechanics of that seemed difficult. Yeah, yeah. Somebody said to me, can I be resurrected with my second wife because I can't stand my first? <laughs> Which my answer was, yeah, but she has a choice too, you know? <laughs> because the people take that literally. And traditionalist Jews do take it literally. How do you I, take it? I don't take it literally. I take it as a piece of poetry. It's as if the rabbis wanted to tell me, how does God want to have me at the end? And my sense is what they were saying is that God wanted to have me just the way I am in my one and only solitary time here on earth. And it, what it does is vindicate my life in history and in community in the present. That is exactly what God wants. To Neil, a bodily resurrection is poetry. He does not take it literally. Neil reflects the modern critical view, which rejects the Bible as the inerrant word of God. Those who do take the Bible literally, Orthodox Jews and many Christians, take a different read. The New Testament does seem explicit. Humanity's great hope is a resurrection of the dead to eternal life. My feeling, with no evidence to support it and no faith to believe it, I can only try to understand it.
I asked sophisticated believers how eternal life might work. Since the philosophy of ultimate things flourished in medieval Catholicism, I go to Notre Dame to meet Catholic philosopher Thomas Flint. Christians believe that, that there is a kind of union which existed between the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus of Nazareth, this created human individual who walked in Palestine 2,000 years ago. They talk about the Son assuming this individual human, coming into this very close union, which Aquinas said we could think of as a kind of union of parts becoming whole. It seems as if it's at least possible that it could exist between the Son and other human beings. It may be what God will do with those who reach eternal life is see that it's appropriate to take them into exactly that same kind of union that existed between the Son and does exist between the Son and Jesus of Nazareth. And so human beings would, would become part of God or become God? Well, I don't think it would be right to say that they become God, okay? In the same way that traditionally, at least, Christians haven't thought of that body-soul composite that was Jesus of Nazareth as itself being God, taken by itself. Rather, it was united with this divine person. And that would not, though, be a melding into a cosmic consciousness, which maybe some Eastern religions have, where you lose your personal identity. I wouldn't like that. I don't think we'd lose our individuality, but we might lose our personal identity. Christians traditionally haven't thought that in the Incarnation we have two different persons. We have, on the one hand, the Son, and on the other hand, this body-soul composite, Jesus of Nazareth. The insistence has always been that there's one person involved here, the Son, who takes on this human nature, who unites himself to that human nature, and therefore that individual human being, this body-soul composite, isn't himself a person. He's united to this divine person. If this possibility with regard to all of us that I was speculating about were to be actual, I think we might want to say that I would no longer be a person if I were assumed into the person of the Son. In the same way that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't a separate person from the Son, I would remain who I am. But the quality of being a separate individual person is something that would be lost. But it wouldn't be right really to talk about loss here. I mean, Aquinas says it's an infinite gain for a body-soul composite to be united to a divine person. It's an exalted status, not a diminished kind of status. If that's true with regard to Jesus of Nazareth, I think it would be true with regard to us as well, if we were to be united with God in that way. I hope we find out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do hope we find out, but I have little confidence and find no comfort. I'd be tempted by Tom's speculation of divine union. That would give eternal life real teeth. But hold on here. I'd have to lose my personal identity, but I could maintain my individuality? I'd be assumed into another person? Sounds like that science fiction film, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I'd not be volunteering anytime soon even to merge with a divine person.
This is fun, imagining what eternal purpose could possibly be. Can this idea of joining with God be pushed further? I ask an innovative Christian philosopher, Robin Collins. I don't think of eternal life just simply as, you know, going to heaven and talking to God or playing the harps for all eternity. Rather, I very much like the Eastern Orthodox um, view within Christianity, and I think it's implicit in, in actual other religious faiths, that ultimately eternal life is participation in the divine nature. So for the Eastern Orthodox, they say the ultimate goal of human beings and even of the cosmos is divinization, to fully participate in the divine life, be taken up in the life of God, so in, in that nature. Does that mean that it, we as individual personalities will be like God? I don't know if I would say like God. It could mean that we might have to sort of successively get more and more the knowledge that God has, maybe even some of the powers that God has. Well, I can't really say what exactly that's going to involve beyond that point, but I think it would fulfill what the highest sort of desires of human beings, and I think we desire transcendence and expansion as well, and creativity, so all those things I think would be fulfilled to the maximum. How do you prevent the process from becoming boring if you are dealing with an eternal amount of time? Well, I think when you have infinity and an infinite number of things to do and an infinite number of realms to explore and you keep going deeper at every stage, I don't think repetitiveness becomes a problem. Think of people that do very deep meditation, for instance, and um, it can be very repetitive, but the repetition itself, like for example, you'd find in, let's say, Zen Buddhism or something, gets you deeper and deeper and deeper levels, so it opens you up to a world that transcends yourself, and it's the expansion of self into this deeper reality that makes it not boring. One of the differences, though, between Eastern and Western religions is that Eastern religions generally uh, subsume the individual personality into the cosmic consciousness or the great beyond, and, and the highest good is this emptying of yourself as opposed to keeping the individual first-person sentience of my individuality. There's um, several major schools of Eastern religions that claim that sort of thing, but there is a theistic version of Hinduism, and in that version, we don't lose our individual identity. If you're a theist, you believe that there is, in some sense, God is external to you, a greater reality than you, whereas the ones where this absorption occurs, actually it's it, it's realizing that we are one with ultimate reality, absolutely identical with Brahman or the Buddha nature already, and then we gain that realization and we're sort of lose our individuality because the individual ex um, person never really existed to begin with. But for theistic versions, God always remains external, but you grow into deeper and deeper unity with God. I see. To me, the only goal worthy of eternal life, if anything of immortality could ever make sense, would be participation in the divine nature, if anything of the divine could ever exist. Becoming godlike gets my attention. Short of that, my mind wanders. I'd go for Robin's glorious goal though I'm not quite about to carry the religious baggage. 
Perhaps I've followed the western trail farther than it extends. Where would eastern religions take me? I visit the distinguished Buddhist scholar Ananda Guruje. Ananda, we know we're finite creatures, and the question of what happens after I'm not here or before I ever was is something that I've been busy with my whole life. What is the Buddhist concept of eternity? It's a very interesting question that you asked about the Buddhist concept of eternity because it is one of the ten questions for which Buddha refused to give an answer. <laughs> the reason why the Buddha did not give an answer is this. He said some would, people would say that everything is eternal, that everything exists. That starts with the individual soul and the universal soul and the universes themselves. But the Buddha couldn't think in terms of such a eternal something that doesn't keep on changing, that doesn't keep on appearing and disappearing. The three stages of existence of anything, they arise, they exist, and they pass away. Yes. So he said, I do not contribute to the idea of eternalism. Then the, the question is, oh, you are a nihilist. He said, I refuse to call myself a nihilist also because I do not say things do not exist. Mm. So the Buddhist concept of time factor with regard to eternalism or nihilism is something in between. But there is another aspect of the Buddhism in which a concept similar to eternalism appears. And that is Nibbana or the Nirvana. So Nirvana is defined as a state of immortality. Oh. If I, when the Buddha first attained his status as a Buddha and had only 60 disciples, he sent them away in 60 directions saying, go and announce to the world that a new way to a state of immortality has been found. So somebody could say that Nibbana could be interpreted as eternal. But if the Buddha was asked, is that eternal? Or is there anything eternal? He said, I do not want to answer. It's an unexplained question of the Buddha. I mean, Buddha's concept of Nibbana is you have to reach it to know it. It's not something that you can logically explain. You have to reach it. You have to attain it. But if we take the concept of nirvana as the exemplification of immortality, how does that relate to the universe itself? I'm trying to get the distinction between the universe and the personal consciousness. One important thing is, with regard to nirvana, it is a state of mind that is achieved while you're still alive. Okay. The philosophical explanation is, that you have put an end to the desire to such an extent that that desire which is the process which causes you to be reborn stops. And that frees you from the cycle of birth and death and you have this bliss and inner peace. What happens when you physically die and, and, and does that state of nirvana that you're in continue? in some disembodied form? Buddha again gave only a simile. He pointed to a lamp and said, 
you will just blow off just like this lamp. You blow a lamp, what happened to the flame? As a scientist, I cannot verify life after death. I find no evidence for immortality or eternal life. But I myself do not reject the possibility, even without evidence. Suppose there is life after death. What would it be like? What's the difference between immortality and eternal life? Immortality means living forever in time and describes the duration or quantity of time lived. Whereas eternal life means existing beyond time and describes the essence or quality of a radically different kind of living. Theologians and philosophers fear to fill the chasm between what God is and what we might become. Not me. If I were to consider immortality and eternal life, I'd shrink the distance between what God is and what we might become. Our plane of eternal existence would reach to the godlike. Some of my new friends, Russell, Tom, Robin, go almost to God, but then draw back, daring not go all the way. I'd go all the way, but that's hardly closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.